Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, unexplained, unbelievable, the mystical, the magical, the macabre, New England's own Van Helsink. And with me, all the way across the pond, is the gold standing and ghost hunting, Mr. Steve Parson. Yo, how do you like it? Your intro just sounds like uh, that one. Well, might be. You know what I mean? There's a guy in Spirit Radio has an intro just like that. Shut up. <laughs> it's true. True. <laughs> Truth is stranger in fiction. And by the way, that is the theme of today's show. As, it, as we look into the mystical, the magical... And the macabre, if you would like, we are uh, spending today and tomorrow. Steve and I will be doing both shows together as we explore our mysterious world. This is actually a really cool show, and I've been really looking forward to doing it because, I mean, that's one thing I've always, always been interested in is, you know, the world all around us. And when I find something that doesn't fit, I just love it. I just absolutely love it. I love a mystery. I love, you know, all that stuff. What about you? Cool. Well, me too. I mean, paranormal investigation is all about exploring mysteries, isn't it? The mysteries of human experience and possibly more. Right. You know, you know, you and I what were talking. Great, well, I was going to say, what about that great mystery of the missing sock? Yeah, there you go. Whenever you, you go. put a sock in for wash, you put two in. You get one back. Well, maybe you do, but I don't. They know better than mess with me. <laughs> there we are, then. But you and I were talking before about the the ghost world that we're in now. There's so many paranormal groups doing so many stuff and everything else. And and we were thinking, well, you know what? Maybe we should step back and, and just kind of like it. But you know what? I, I think maybe we should become mystologists. Mysterologists. Is there mysterologists? How can we say that? Mysterologists? Mysterologists? What do you think, Steve? Uh, it could be whatever we want it to be. Mysterologists? But, you know, we, we're, we're going to have to end up explaining that we're not investigating misters. Misters? What's a mister? Exactly. It's like mammosology, the word I tried to create for ghosts. Because oh, God, yeah, yeah, thank God. Yeah. I just killed that thing. Yeah. <laughs> God. Well, I preferred the other the other Roman word for ghosts, which was lemur. So you could have been lemurologists and then look for small, furry, monkey-like creatures. Yeah, that too. Yeah. You see, it's just not, it just doesn't work, does it? You've got to get, yeah, it's it like, doesn't. you've got to take care when, when choosing uh, any form of name or title. Um, you know, I mean, let's, let's take the two paranormal groups, parascience. For years, years and years and years, we, we always used to have to explain it wasn't parasites. Um, <laughs> and I hear you every single week, any ghost project, the letter N, the letter E, because again, you didn't think that one through. Actually, you know where I got the name, New England Ghost Project? 
No, I'll say about the NE Ghost Project. Yeah, do you know do you know where I get it from? The name New England Ghost Project. I, yes, I agree with you. Any any Ghost Project does run on, yeah. but um, I you know it was hard. It was easy to put any Ghost Project dot <laughs> com than New England Ghost Project dot com, which is even longer. Yeah. Being a dot com, you know, so that's the thing. But you know how I get the name and uh, oh, tell us, tell us. Yes. Um, as you know, I've told the story a hundred times, but basically the the group started as a uh, as a television show. Uh, I was, you know, I took a course in TV production, and we had a completer to complete the course. We had to do a show, and I was always interested in mysterious things. And my shop was supposed to be haunted, so I'll do it on. I said I'll do it on ghosts, and that's how I get involved and interested in it. But I had to come up with a name with it, and. So New England, of course, is self-evident because that's where I am. Ghost is because what we were doing. And project, where did the word project come from? You want to guess? Dictionary? The Blair Witch Project. That was hot at the time. And I said, well, I like that project. Project is good because it sounds like you're doing something more than just running around being silly. So <laughs> that's why I picked it. So well, it's anyway. funny. It's funny how we. I, mean, I suppose we better share share why we picked parascience because. Oh, um, there you go. I, I didn't think you would. I, I thought that was you know a British no, thing it, to share things with us. No, I mean no. I mean parascience came about because Anne and I were looking for. You know, we wanted to explore um, our interest in creepy crawlies and things that, that inhabit oh, the human the body. No, and things that inhabit the human body. So, uh, oh, really? We set up a group. You know, we were looking at parasites, and then we decided that that was just too easy. Actually, parascience is dead simple. It's it's actually not even the name of the group because when you see it written down, you will you will have noticed that it's para, uh, full stop, or whatever period is the American with them. Then capitalize science because the, the actual name of the group is. Uh, what it says on the tin, paranormal science. We use science to study the paranormal, hence parascience. So blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah. So there you go. People learn something. So parascience is an abbreviation from the name of the group. Yep, there you go. So anyways, uh, people are, uh, you know, found that interesting, but they're really interested in what we have to say tonight. What mm. the hell are we going to talk about? Wow. So do you want to theory- well, yeah, I mean the mysterious. I I'm going to keep it with the paranormal um, a, okay. a little bit, a little bit to kick off with because um, you're going to kick gonna, it off good. All right. Then then I'm going to stay this side, very much this side of the Atlantic with uh, some British mysteries, although they do extend a little further afield. Oh, that's okay. Um, that's fine. And a discovery of um, first identified in ni- in the 1920s by an amateur archaeologist by the name of Alfred Watkins, and he entitled these phenomena ley lines oh so i thought yeah ley lines they're very mysterious they're very on trend and of course they relate to the paranormal because as the theories go and there are lots and lots of different theories that hauntings are said to occur at locations along ley lines and that there are other you know sort of great energy sites and haunted locations like stonehenge which which funnily enough is on the list for later um but there are lots of phenomena, not um, not just hauntings, um, but there are lots of other spiritual and earth mystery phenomena that are said to manifest along ley lines. So 
I guess we've got to, first of all, try to specify and pin down what exactly is a ley line. Yeah, what is a ley line? Well, as I say, the term goes back, really, to the very early 1920s with Alfred Watkins, who was, an, who was an, a British amateur archaeologist. And he, he used to like walking the countryside, and he was considering the problems that our ancient ancestors, the Stone Age man and the Bronze Age man, had getting around obviously they didn't have gps and they didn't have maps but they needed to go from place to place uh, to visit relatives to trade because trade you know we know from archaeology that you know uh, ancient man was trading right across um, europe um, so obviously they they had a, a form of navigation so he speculated and then he developed his theories that they were using alignments within the landscape, so hilltops, uh, prominent features, cliffs and trees, and things that they could see, and then um, they would go from one to the other, to the other, to the other. And he called these ley lines, and the, t- the word ley actually means clearance in the forest. It's an old Anglo-Saxon... Uh, not, not New England. Um uh, no, it might mean something entirely different now, yeah. but uh, back then, lay, L-E-Y. And so um, I, he wrote his book. Um, he wrote a book called The Old Straight Track, and he went out to try and identify some of these ancient trackways within the British landscape. Um, now, his book was never a great bestseller, and it languished a lot. But in, in the late 1960s, there was another writer came along, a guy called John Mitchell, who wrote a book called The View Over Atlantis. And he revived the the term and the idea of ley lines, these ideas of energy, um, the, the, these ideas of straight lines. But he associated his with spiritual and mystical energy that sort of lives within the landscape, earth energies, um, that sort of flows through the planet itself. And he drew upon the sort of Chinese idea of feng shui and also the Chinese uh, idea of dragon lines. Uh, the Chinese um, have got this idea of dragon lines that they call these lines of energy that join places and travel around the globe. And um, Mitchell promoted his idea. Um, and, it, of course, the late 60s, it was the hippie era. It was the era of the age of Aquarius, which is becoming, uh, just becoming the age of Aquarius. And unlike the old straight track, Mitchell's book, The View Over Atlantis, took off and uh, over the hills and far away uh, ran, ran with it. And of course, we now have thousands of, of books and many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people who believe in Earth energies, who believe that these, ali- these ancient alignments exist within the landscape and that not just uh, haunted sites are on there, but UFOs. Uh, use them for navigation or to draw energy from the earth um, as they travel around. So um, they, they they extend not just uh, through through the British Isles. I talked earlier about the Chinese idea of the dragon line, but there are ley lines across North America. Uh, there are ley lines across you know every every continent um, of the, of the planet, and indeed you know across all the oceans too. Uh, some of them, I mean, there have been books that have attempted to map the ley lines. Um, you know, they look for ancient places, churches, religious places, uh, prominent features, 
related to mythology. Even in one or two uh, cases, they can get a little bizarre. I remember talking to a leyline investigator who, who used to go out at weekends and evenings and actually look for ley lines. Uh, and he was having trouble. I remember him having trouble trying to work out an alignment that wasn't seemed to, he couldn't extend it any further. He seemed to have stopped. And he'd stopped at a, 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 a thousand-year-old church, but he could go no further. And the next time I saw him, a month or two later, he'd made a breakthrough and was able to continue his line uh, many, many more miles. I said to him, well, what did you find? And he said, um, I, I used a on-street telephone booth. Um, and that, that was the, the, the next stepping stone. I said, hang on a minute, that thing was probably only built 10 years ago. You can't use that. That, that flies in the face of you know, all things that are reasonable. And what you say about ley lines, he said, but this modern communication device, for that's what the telephone is, obviously is a modern counterpart and harks back to the use of ley lines as ancient forms of communication and energy. And that the, the, the constructors of the telephone kiosk had been inexorably drawn to place their telephone box and handset on top of a ley line. It's intriguing. Yeah. I said it was bullshit, but, you know, you can call it intriguing. I found it intriguing. So yeah, I thought it's the way they thought about it, but there you well, go. Sounded like an act of desperation, but there you go. He got the line moving anyway. That's true. <laughs> okay. Which is the so, important thing, I guess. I guess. So going on with your, and I almost did ley lines, by the way. Uh, going on with your ley lines, I mm. came up with Ghost Roads. which fits right in. Uh, Ghost roads are ancient straight road systems and puzzling alignments of sacred sites that may have simple explanations. Recent researches in Northern Europe suggest that they be connected with Vikings' burial rites. Ooh, isn't that interesting, huh? Possibly. (laughs) Okay. Three curious minor roads cross Hotland or Heathland, excuse me, between the towns of Lauren and Wilsterstossum outside of Amsterdam. God, why do I always get the words I can't pronounce? The roads are perfectly straight and converge on St. John's Cemetery. These roads were Dog and Wagon. Dog and Wagon? Dog and Wagon? D O O D W E G E N. Which but means. I'm leaving you to struggle with this one. Thank you, which means you, death. You picked you pick Dutch. <laughs> which means death roads. Uh, medieval tracks used for taking corpses to burial. Long forgotten, they've been rediscovered by British artist John Palmer, who has found death roads at other sites in Holland as well. The local people of De Loot, oh boy, in. Uh, Twente, Holland, <laughs> referred to the road that runs through the town as a doggin wagon or death road. Like I got it, like wig corpse road or spoken wig spook road or ghost road. In Netherlands, in the oh God, <laughs> as a medieval oath had to be sworn at a traditional uh, twice annual uh Oh, God. Ex-celestial court by people 
who are charged with transporting corpses during funerals. The oath reads, out our court roads, our corpse roads are in good order, and we have followed the straight corpse road to with the body. So they got to take a little oath to bring bodies, I guess. I wonder if our undertakers do that. Do they do that in the UK now? No, uh, but we have we 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 do have uh, related uh, landscape features in the UK, particularly in Wales uh, and and in the upland parts of the uh, north uh, of England. Uh, 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 uh. You're in my my part now. Yeah, right. Ours are in English. Many bros, many British folk referred to corpse ways. According to tradition, a funeral path traveling along a on foot created right out of the way wherever it went. These right of ways have been uh, the origin of corpse ways. More research is, is needed to establish whether these corpse ways were indeed actual tracks along funeral party. Uh, they carried the corpse. Uh, it could be this, uh, you know, it's the same, basically it's the same as the, uh, the, uh, the Dutch one. Now the Germans is, uh, oh God, Geistenberg, which means ghost path, are also found as part of Germany. What the frig? In this book, in the English version of Hamburg's of German yeah, Hamburg's Handbook of German Superstitions, uh, which was written in 1933. It contains uh, the entry, ghost paths are always in the same place, and on them one often meets a ghost. The paths, without exception, always run in a straight line over mountains, valleys, and through marshes. In the towns they pass, the houses close by, or sometimes even the ones that go right through them, ooh, the paths always end and originate in the cemetery, and the idea may stem from ancient custom of driving the corpse along a special dead man's road. The roads are believed to be the same characteristics as the cemetery, and it is a place where spirits of the deceased thrive. So there's my little story on ghost roads. Hmm. Well, um. I don't want to pour water on the idea because there is there is a historical precedent for what you say, and it, it comes in later when we look at um, other other mysteries, uh, ancient. Uh, but this idea of of corpse corpse roads, corpse routes, does exist in the landscape because they obviously had to get the body for burial. Right. Um, they obviously had to get the deceased to to church. Although, if you think about it, people went to church in the medieval period. You know, prior to that, they didn't do a lot of you know pre-Christian era. They didn't do a great deal of uh, worrying about where they buried the dead in terms of um, putting them in a churchyard. But oh, they but they did during Viking times. They had uh, this yeah. is where they believe a lot of this was originated. Yeah. So, from. I mean, we're dealing we're dealing with the post-Christian era where people yep. you know centralized burial. And of course, if you lived in a remote village, um, although a lot of villages may have had a small chapel or prayer uh, prayer uh, building, they may not have had a suitable church uh, or churchyard, and so they would need to transport the dead. And and indeed, they did transport them. But the number of deaths in these very small communities doesn't really, and this is a problem that archaeologists had, is that they didn't really relate to the use of these trackways. Um, mm-hmm. The trackways were very rarely straight uh, when they really? actually, when they actually looked at them. Because if they were going uphill and down dale and cross country, they tended to fight, fight, follow the um, 
the path of least resistance or the path of greatest sort of you know uh, they followed the contours of the land so they they would they would skirt around hills at the same level so they didn't descend they didn't rise because obviously that would be a huge effort mm-hmm. you know um, th- there are areas where the straightest you know the straightest point between two two places is the shortest point the shortest route so so obviously the road is straighter because they didn't you know they didn't have um, you know all of the roadways what they discovered actually or what archaeologists believe that a lot of these routes relate to is more the droving of animals to and from market or the fact that in the winter they would bring the animals down from the hills into the lower pastures and then in the summer take them back up again uh, and this would you know this this was a constant movement of livestock back and forth along these routes which would engrave the route into the landscape um, by wearing away at the uh, uh, you know, at, at, at the soil and eroding it, but it, within Wales certainly, I mean, that we have um, corpse roots. Um, they're well known in Derbyshire and the north of England as well, in the hillier parts. In funny enough, in the uh, sort of sheep areas of the north of England, like Wales, is well known for its sheep also. Um, but there are uh, there are even stories, ghostly stories attached to them. Um, one of the most famous uh, ghosts or, or ghost phenomena of Wales in particular is the corpse candle and these are glowing orbs of light I really didn't want to say that but they are glowing orbs of light (laughs) rather like a candle flame which move along these routes through the landscape as a portent a a precedent of death uh, to be you know uh, forthcoming Mm -hmm. Um, and there have been some very well uh, documented well attested examples um, of corpse, corpse roots and corpse candles, but this idea of the straight track, the straight, the very straightness, I think archaeologists and, and I would tend to agree um, with this view. Is it's much? They are much, much, much older than this idea of moving corpses around. Um, although there may be some link to uh, death. Um, one of the things we're going to talk about after the break, of course, is one of the greatest mysteries, which is the big henges like Stonehenge. What's interesting is almost every one of these great stone henges like Calanish, Stonehenge, and there are many, many hundreds of smaller examples, usually have what is known as a, a long straight track linking them into the environment called a cursus. Cursus, um, that was my actually my next one. And Sorry. And these are very long, straight pathways that lead off, uh, off away from, or even towards the Henge monuments, mm-hmm. um, and maybe some form of ritual. Um, perhaps they did bring bodies to the Henge. Perhaps they use it as some form of ritual funeral device. Um, and there's certainly many, many uh, burial chambers along these uh, cursus lines. So they are, there is a link between long, straight lines and death within the landscape. Right. But that might be a separate thing too, or a, or a folk memory of um, of you know that's translated itself into the corpse roads. Right, and the, the name Cursus comes from uh, antiquarian William uh, Stokely, uh, who discovered the, the the Stonehenge cursor in uh, seventeen twenty five twenty three. He called it ah. the Cursus for the Latin word racetrack, and is often, uh, these are often referred to as uh, Roman racetracks, by the way. Well, they do. I mean, the, the Great Cursus at Stonehenge is nearly two miles in length and does look, you know, not dissimilar to a racetrack. 
But what's interesting is most of these great henges, uh, when I was up in Anglesey recently, we have, we have henges in, in West Wales, where I live now, and they do have outlying stones um, that form these, these straight tracks, these straightaways uh, that lead to and from the henge. So, and there are a lot of burials associated with them. So there clearly was something going on. And this is the mystery, of course. We don't know. We try and interpret, you know, why why were they doing this? Why were they arranging things? And you know, people come, like to theorise and have ideas. But the mystery is we just don't know. We don't know why they built Kalanish. We don't know why they built Stonehenge. And we don't know why they kept going everywhere, burying the dead along straight lines. Um, it would be, I mean, let's be honest you would it would be far easier if you just dug a hole in a field and popped you know uh, the ancestor into the ground nearby rather than struggle for days and days you know uphill and down dale to take them somewhere to bury them but clearly there is a ritual component that isn't being um, that the need isn't being satisfied by mm-hmm. by just stuffing them in a you know sticking them in a bin bag and popping them in the hole right and and we know that you know that there are so many uh, beliefs that affect uh, not only roads, but also uh, cemeteries as well. And, of course, uh, we've talked about this about before, that a lot of often uh, they would not bring a corpse over a uh, running water because they believed that the running water would capture the soul of the uh, corpse of the person. And uh, so that's why they often had... Uh, different burial grounds in the same town, but one would be on one side of uh, a stream or river and the other one would be on the other side because they did not want to bring the uh, corpse over the running water and, and lose the soul. Oh, I mean, we could do a whole month of shows just on, on uh, funeral superstitions and death superstitions mm-hmm. and things that you did with the corpse. And weird ones like in West Wales, you would a group of men would haul the deceased up the chimney to signify passing. We had the Sin Eater, which of course is a feature of one of the Dan Brown novels later, but it's part of British folklore and mythology, this idea that somebody would be paid to eat a meal and eat the sins of the deceased so that they could pass, pass freely into, into mm-hmm. heaven. Um, you know, there, are, there are literally, there's, there's, there's thousands and thousands of pages written about the the death customs, um, mm-hmm. just just the trials. Yeah, right. I mean, we could do a month of shows on just that subject. There you go. So before we go to the break, I just wanted to take a look at superstitions because I, I some of them we, we we know and some of them we don't. And this one is all about hats. It says a hat should never. And this is one. Oddly enough, I really believe it. Uh, a hat should never be set on a table or a bed. To do so will bring misfortune to the household. It's also bad luck to put your hat on backwards. Tell all these idiots to put their baseball packs. However, if you turn your hat back to front like baseball catches, it may bring you good fortune. Oh, so I guess they're okay. So anyways, that's a little thing about, yeah, I, that, that's one of my little phobias that I, I, I won't crap. ever put a hat on a, on a bed or a table. Oh, crap. Uh, I've got. To, I'm just going to move two hats off the table nearby. Oh, please do! Yeah, you better I'll do, do it that. In the break. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that is the tune. So we have to take a break. You're listening to the mysterious world of Steve and Rod right here on Tojinet and Pararex, and we'll be right back after the following messages.
Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. Chronicles International tonight's show is a mysterious one, and uh, it is a mysterious one. Part one of of a two part of that we're joining forces with Ghost Chronicles: The Next Generation. So, um, for you insomniacs here in the UK, listen to us live again tomorrow night from midnight here in the UK, or mm-hmm. seven PM if you're on the eastern seaboard of the colonies, southern Canada, as I now call it. Um, <clears throat> one of the great mysteries of this week, uh, just being topical, um, is why two British paranormal investigators have just spent respectively 800 and something and 900 and something pounds on eBay buying haunted dolls. Whoa. That's a true mystery. Somebody has a lot of money that they don't need. Yeah. (laughs) Not very many brain cells though. Uh, Anyway, pressing on with, with some perhaps more, uh, uh, less mysterious subjects. Um, (laughs) I'm a bit reluctant to do the last one because I've got to do most of it in, uh, with lots of Welsh place names. And I'm <laughs> just thinking back to your attempt with the Dutch and the German earlier. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Uh, anyway, so I'm going to play safe for the time being and stick with Stonehenge, um, which is what we're Oh, go with the Welsh one. I, I'll get to it. Don't worry. I'll get to the Welsh one. Oh, if we have time. Okay. Oh, all right, then. I'll go straight to the Welsh one, should I? Um, I'm going to be talking about the story of Atlantis. Or oh, Cantra, yeah, you got to bring that one. That's a good one. Or, or Cantra Igualiod, the mythical sunken kingdom of Wales. What? Of course, yeah. What? Cantra, Atlantis is Wales? Atlantis is Welsh. I'll be damned. I yeah, never knew that. 
And, weirdly, it exists. What I'm going to be talking about, this Cantra Iguailiod. Yes, go on, go on. Ah. So the story of Atlantis, of course, is well-known, well-renowned, and uh, written written about by Plato. But this story of Atlantis is not unique to Greece. The Welsh um, have this um, legend of land masses disappearing under the waves. And one of these is the story of Cantra Iguailiod, which means the lowland hundred. A hundred is essentially a county or a... An, an area of land. Um, it's a Saxon expression for uh, a parcel of land, a large parcel of land, equivalent to a county, I guess. Uh, this one is supposed to lie off the Welsh coast between Ramsey Island in the in the south and Bardsey Island in the north of, of Wales, an area that I live at, this, uh, at the southern end of called Cardigan Bay. Or, uh, uh, so it's off the, west, or the Welsh west coast, and it's believed that Cantra Iguailiod extends 25 miles offshore um, or up from the current modern shoreline out into the sea. During the 6th century, this was said to be ruled over by the legendary king by the name of Gwithio Galanhir. And in fact, up to the 17th century, Cantra Iguailiod was known as Mais Guidio, meaning Guidio's land, uh, which was named after this Welsh ruler. And there is an early version of the legend that associates Maius Guidio um, and describes that the land was submerged underwater when Meredith, the priestess of the fairy well, allowed the water in the well to become uh, to overflow. There is a different legend, of course, that says uh, that it described as Cantre Gwailiod as being a, an extremely fertile land. So fertile, in fact, that an acre of land... Um, there was worth a hundred, was worth four acres anywhere else in in the kingdom. The only problem is that it was protected from the sea by a large dike, and at low tide the sluice gates in the dike were open to allow water to drain from the land, and at high tide the gates were closed. But the watchman appointed to look after the gates was a man called Scythethin, um, and he was a heavy drinker. And he went to a party at the king's palace one night oh when, a storm, when a storm approached from the southwest. So from, from here, from Pembrokeshire, probably. And as he was either having too much fun or he'd fell asleep, Scythevin didn't notice the storm and failed to close the gates. And 16 villages were drowned. Gwaitin oh. and his followers were forced to leave the low-lying fertile land and seek a living further up into the mountains. Now, that's the story. However, right from the north in Bardsey to the south on Ramsey, there have been remains of prehistoric forests exposed at low tides and during stormy we- uh, weathers in Cardigan Bay. Uh, there has been a wattle, uh, a, a, a wattle and daub walkway. This is um, mud and stick walkway. Mm-hmm. Fossilised human and animal footprints and human tools discovered by undersea archaeologists who have dated them, suggesting that they may be several thousand years old, which indicates that there was indeed land in the area that is now under the sea. Um, you know, we, we have beaches here in West Wales that we can go to at very low spring tides, and we can see these, these petrified forests, and you can really? see animal tracks, and you can pick up... Um, 
huge deer bones that have been fossilized uh, by, by, by being submerged. And there are footprints of, uh, you know, large land animals, bears and, and deer, uh, and people pick up, pick up stone tools. So it's absolutely a fact that there was a large ingress of water that, that took out 25 miles of, of coastal land off the west coast of not just Wales, but also England. Um, there have been archaeological discoveries from south of here into the Bristol Channel and north up to the Mersey estuary and beyond Liverpool of these large sunken forests. And there, have been, there are legends and, and stories within uh, British uh, folk, not just British folklore, but there are actually documented accounts within British history of a large inundation of, of uh, the sea following a huge storm or, a st- or huge earthquakes. And modern arche- the modern archaeological view is that sometime during the 6th century, so approximately 1,500 years ago, that there was some cataclysmic event, perhaps a tsunami, uh, that did inundate uh, the coast of Great Britain and eradicate you know, many, many of these coastal towns and villages. And we have many ghost legends associated with these offshore villages that are now sunken the you know at certain states of the tide and on certain days of the year if you you stand on the shore you can hear the bells of the sunken churches ringing or that there is treasure buried within the buildings or within the um uh you know within the 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 sunken villages and Mm -hmm. that washes up on the beaches so there is a historical precedent to this so perhaps this is a mystery that isn't that mysterious but the legends that what's interesting is how is how this historical fact because there obviously was an inundation of land the sea did come in and submerge the the large areas of land is then how it how the story develops from generation to generation because the survivors must have moved away those who did survive this uh, mighty tsunami and you know we saw from the japanese earthquake and tsunami uh, how many people were were killed, but right. there were survivors, and it's how you know with, they don't have television, they don't have the internet, they don't have video, so you know they would tell their children and their grandchildren, who would tell their children and grandchildren, and the story would develop from over generations, great great traditions of storytelling, and each I guess each generation would possibly embellish a little bit. And add a little more, you know, a great mm. king here and there, the story of a sluice gate keeper or the fairy who just let the well overflow. Mm. Uh, because children, you know, they don't want to hear the truth that there was a huge earthquake and you know, all your family were wiped out as a stroke. Could be. We'll find out in the future about Japan. So anyways, moving on to our next little mystery, and before I do that, I'll give you another uh, superstition or belief, and it is believed that a mouse is said to be the visible manifestation of the soul of a murdered person. Did you know that? A mouse. A mouse. Should a mouse or mice nibble on clothes or food during the night, it is said to be a sign of impending danger. In England which is your neck of the wood. Uh-huh. Uh, if a number of mice overrun a house, it is supposed to indicate an impending death in the family. Oh, crap. Got a little mouse problem there, Steve? Well, we live in the country. We have a garage full of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, like and, 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 a, and very occasionally they, they break into the house. Oh, in yeah. Of, yeah. 
because I mean it's one that you know we live in the country we have mice you know the mice live in the country and when when the of course in the winter months uh, the farmers have, have harvested the crops and so you know, the mice know where there's a good source of food mm-hmm. so I didn't realize though that they that, oh there you go so anyways uh, talk about you talking about things disappearing and, and uh, things from the past coming back is what I'm going to go with in uh, August 1951 two English women uh, Mrs. Dorothy N and her sister Miss Agnes N were on vacation in a seaside village of Place near Dieppe in Normandy I sure I screwed that out about 4 o'clock in the early hours of August 4th not too far away Steve the women claimed who were awakened suddenly by the sound of gunfire, yeah. whining planes, dive bombing, and men's crying. Over the next three hours, they listened and, and uh, were appalled uh, by the sounds as they were able to uh, listen to a blow-by-blow replay of the Second World War II battle. Uh, the Canadians and British uh, raid on the German-held port of Dieppe. The nighttime attack... Uh, on August 19, 1942, was bloody and unsuccessful, as, as most of the British ones were. And uh, 6,086 Allied troops who, who participated in the attack, uh, there were over 3,000 casualties. Now, what's really interesting about this, Steve, is that they actually built this little table showing uh, what, what the women reported versus the, the battery, the uh, battle itself. And I'll give it to you. The woman's statement says, about 4 a.m., sounds of gunfire, shouts, and the cries of men uh, above storm-like noise. Uh, At 3.47, German ships and allied assault vessels uh, exchanged gunfire, probably shouting German defenders at Poise Beach. In 5.07 and 5.40 in the morning, after a quarter hour of silence, the intense noise began again. Dive bombers were heard. 5.07, the first Allied landing crafts reached Poise Breach. And I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, by the way. That's P-U-Y-S. And were met by heavy fire. At 5.15, low-flying hurricanes attacked German defenses. At 3.20, the main landing uh, began in depth, uh, meeting heavy resistance. Uh, 5.40 to 5.50, silence, the woman reported. Uh, 5.40, 5.50, the naval bombardment ceased. Um, 5.50, noise of aircraft broke the silence. 5.50 a.m., British Airlines reached depth. So there you go. So isn't that kind of current? But, oh, wait a minute, I'll say the, uh, uh, the two women who happened to be staying at a house used by the German troops during the war made detailed notes of uh, what they heard, which is what I just reported. And from these, uh, they later wrote statements describing their experiences. They were sent their accounts to the Society for Physical uh, Psychical Research. You ever hear of them, Steve? Yeah. So are you aware of this? Yes, oh yes. I, I uh, this was well this was researched by the Society for Psychical Research, the SPR, and was published in several volumes of the journal. Uh, so which are on my shelf. <laughs> so you do you want to talk about it a little bit? Um, um by well, the SBR I mean, time, SBR approach. Uh, you, you've given well. The, the investigation was really a, a documentation of the experiences, it, because obviously it had taken place, um, and you can't sort of recreate it. Um, and comparisons were made. Um, 
that I think it was Guy Lambert was the um, SPR researcher who who took on the the task of uh, examining the the um, the testimony of the two ladies, which did you know as you say it does uh, tally with the known facts of the Dieppe raid, which involved not just the British but also the Canadians and was highly right. unsuccessful. It was a, it was a, it was a, a sort of trial run for D Day, which followed it in 1944. Um, and I mean, it's often cited alongside the Versailles case, where the two ladies, of course, claim to have oh, seen yeah. Versailles yep. as it as it was under uh, Marie Antoinette. Um, as as a great example of the ability to replay time past slips. events and time slips, or or some sort of replaying of of past events, and, and um, we have many of these too, Steve, don't we? Um, there are lots of uh, there like are a battle in the sky in, in in your neck of the woods, your, are, well, your country. There are lots of uh, historic reenactments of battles seen. One, um, I don't want to, I, I don't know whether I should mention the only. The only paranormal case that's ever been attested to by a royal commission. Really, um, you can, yes, definitely. Which was a battlefield haunting, uh, a battlefield reenactment that took place following the Battle of Naseby, um, which was 1642, from, or maybe a year or two. I don't know, but I'm sure it was 1642. Anyway, following the battle, which took place earlier in the year, uh, around Christmas of that year, the the, the locals in the villages around Naseby. Um, reported the sounds and sights of a great battle taking place in the skies above the, the village, above the battlefield. And these reports um, were taken so seriously and were so common that King Charles I sent a, a royal commission. He appointed a royal commission to go and examine these, these ridiculous claims for themselves. And they duly went, and on Christmas Eve and over the Christmas of 1642 3 uh, it might be be a year or two out there, forgive me. Um, the Royal Commission visited, they spoke to people, they went to the site and they saw for themselves the battle being reenacted in the skies over the battlefield in so much detail that the members of the Royal Commission recognised um, people who had taken part in the battle, both killed in the battle and survivors of the battle. I, I, th- I thought actually I heard a report where one of them actually recognized himself in the, in the battle. Uh, not a recognition of self that I'm aware of, but certainly they recognized significant people who they knew in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these, of course, had, had been killed during the battle and some had survived. But it remains the only case in British uh, history and British uh, law uh, in which um, a royal commission has attested to Paranormal, a paranormal claim. Well, that's pretty good. I know we're running out of time, and we do have a brand new teller of the curious tale. So uh, this would probably be a good time to play it, don't you think, Steve? Perfect time. All right, can we play that, uh, Karina, please? Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, Open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. (laughs) 
The generally accepted belief is that the words printer's devil originated from the fact that the printer's apprentice was always covered with ink and therefore resembled one of Satan's imps, hence the name printer's devil. But this isn't quite true. When printing was first invented, it was looked upon as the work of the evil one. So when Aldous Manitus brought a young Negro slave in Egypt and brought him to work in his printing establishment, the Venetians believed the printer had travelled to hell and brought back a demon. The report spread that Manitius was a sorcerer, using an imp of Satan to do his devilish work of printing. Resentment grew until one day a frenzied mob bent on ridding Venice of this horrid evil stormed Manitus's establishment. In order to save the life and that of the Negro boy, he was forced to face the crowd and speak to them. Men of Venice, this boy is no demon. He's a human from a land where all men are black. He's no printer's devil, but flesh and blood like you and me. Pinch him and feel for yourselves and see. The crowd's anger was appeased. But from that day, the boy and all his successors were printer's devils. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. Wait, where's the laugh at the end there? That took me off guard. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> it gives me an opportunity to correct something I said before, the Teller of Curious Tales. The battle with the Phantom um, Army that was attested by Royal Commission was actually the Battle of Edge Hill in 1642. I was going to correct you, but how dare <clears throat> I correct But how dare you? Because I, I, yeah, well, I corrected yeah, myself. No. Uh, the, the confusion being that in 1645, the Battle of Naseby um, also has a Phantom battle attached. Oh, it does. does the battle as does the battlefield of Marston Moor, uh, where people have also seen the remains of phantom battles. Isn't that anyway, awesome, huh? Isn't that also the case with some of the UK, the U.S. Civil War battles? Oh, yeah, definitely. Gettysburg is, is a prime example of that. There's so many reports of that happening. So anyway. So and anyways. More, most recently, there were several from Vietnam um, and also the great tank battle of Kursk. Um, oh, really? In the Ukraine is supposedly also the site of a where people have claimed to have heard shouting and gunfire and the rumbling sounds of the of the tanks because at Kursk was the greatest tank battle um, ever fought in, in modern history. Uh, so <clears throat> I, 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 you know, we, we are this year, 1917, 2017. Today is the, the day following the uh, 100th anniversary of the um commencement of the Battle of Passchendaele, uh, in which nearly half a million people from both sides, the Germans and British, um, effectively drowned. They were either blown to smithereens by artillery fire or drowned in a morass of mud uh, just, you know, on the Flanders battlefields. And, of course, many, many sites on the Flanders battlefields um, some of the woods, Delville Wood or Devil Wood, as it was known at the time, um, 
and others are well well known, well reported by uh, you know even to the present day. There are many local people who re- re- refuse to enter the woods. Archaeologists too feel uncomfortable. Um, you know they they say they say that they see flitting figures, shadows following them through these. Uh, battlefield landscapes. Oh, absolutely. Even in Gettysburg, there are uh, reports where uh, the reenactors, nowadays modern reactors, will uh, run into soldiers and uh, they look as real as, as them and then they just disappear. So it's yeah, intriguing. Remind, yeah, I mean, it's it not intriguing though because they're, they're dressed up. Maybe does that have something to do with it? It's interesting. I thought. don't know, but it reminds me of an event that took place involving parasites about, uh, about 10 years ago now because we used to, on the 28th of, uh, sorry, on the 4th of July, American Independence Day, we used to visit Master Moore uh, in, in Yorkshire, England because yep. that was the anniversary of the Battle of Master Moore and it, at the site was said to be deeply haunted and a phantom battle had been reported but moreover there was a local uh, legend that no local person would venture onto the battlefield on the anniversary so of course that was like a red rag to a bull so every year uh, parasites would visit Marston Moor and we would arrive the battle took place uh, as as the day drew to an end in a massive thunderstorm uh, and I, we even have, you know, we were able to pick up some archaeological artifacts from the ground. That's uh, interesting. And a massive sunstorm yeah. as well. You, you think it would create a lot of energy. A lot of people would think that. So were you able to record uh, anything at all? No. Um, oh, well, let me let me just continue. I mean, in addition to walking the battlefield and collecting artifacts from the battle, musket balls and other, other remains of the battlefield, um, there was one occasion we got there. Now, of course... The story goes that these are these are men in period costume from the 1640s, from the 17th century, um, that have been seen in the ditches and alongside the modern road that runs across the battlefield. Ghost roads. Uh, this was a very modern road with very very fast. Very modern ghost road. Nonetheless, um, <laughs> we got there this one year, and of course we're looking for uh, phantom figures wearing 17th century soldiers' uniform. And we arrived one year to be confronted by several thousand reenactors. <laughs> <laughs> and it came down to, well, how are we going to spot the ghost? Uh, because he'll be dressed in 17th century costume in a, an army of several thousand reenactors. Oh, you can always do it, I, Steve, and I, I carry this in my kit, and that's a stick. I always poke him with a stick. Well, we came up with the, the really good idea of just counting them over and over and very quickly and see if the numbers tallied. But yeah, there you go. The, the day ended rather well because the wind was blowing strongly across the battlefield. And unfortunately, some, at some point in the year preceding, one of the um, colleagues, one of the reenacting colleagues had passed away. And it was his great, it was his dying wish, it was his final wish, that his ashes were to be scattered by cannon across the battlefield of Marston. Oh, no. And all of the, the reenactors duly trooped out from the pub uh, up onto them, up onto the, up onto the battlefield, and arrayed themselves around the battlefield monuments. And a large cannon had been set up, and his ashes were duly loaded into the cannon with a lot of gunpowder to give him a great send off. Oh, nice! And as prayers were said and uh, flags were lowered, the gun was fired right into the wind, oh. and everybody got a bit. <laughs> there you <laughs> because go. Because this, this man's ashes, combined with the cordite and smoke from the cannon, just blew straight the way back over all of them. 
Mm. So, uh, yeah, a valuable lesson. But, no, I mean, interesting. And Well, we're actually out of time there. Uh, so well, bringing with me to your cabinet of curiosities will be some artifacts from the haunted battlefield of Marston Moor. Excellent. So uh, I, I want to end with another superstition, and this is, of course, the black cat. Uh, if someone is ill and the cat leaves the house, and this is, doesn't have to be a black cat, it means any cat. If someone is ill and the cat leaves the house and cannot be coaxed back, then that person will die. If the bride leaving her wedding hears the family cat sneeze, then she will have a happy marriage. And finally, in the U.S., it is unlucky if a black cat crosses your path. However, in the England or Britain, it is considered lucky. Is that true? Yeah, it is. We we go out of our way to run black cats over to make sure that they cross our path. <laughs> we throw them under ladders as well. Oh, very good. And you break a glass with them too? Or, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do all of that. Yeah, good. yeah we, lo- we love our black cats. Yeah, that's good. So anyways, that's been the first half of uh, our Mysterious World show. And so tune in tomorrow night at 7 o'clock on the same stations. And you will hear Steve and I with more tales of uh, our Mysterious World. You're going to pick another European one. What's that? You're going to pick another European one. Oh, sure. Anyways, till uh, tomorrow night, we'll see you then. Good night and God bless. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.